0: Please turn, if you will, in a Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. It's page 849 in these Bibles in the pews. Mark, chapter 13. As you're turning there, today is uh, what is referred to, as you know, as Palm Sunday on the church calendar, commemorating the day when Jesus made his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and that set events in motion which would culminate with his crucifixion on Friday of that week and his resurrection the following Sunday. Now on either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, and we tend to pass over, we tend to jump from Palm Sunday to Easter, and we skip over some of the important events that took place during that week. On either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, Jesus spoke the words that we have in Mark chapter 13, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because he said these words to his disciples as they were seated on the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem overlooking the city. So I'll read the entire chapter, and so I invite you to follow along. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we often don't think about the end of time as we live from day to day. We pray that you would teach us what Christ is trying to teach the disciples about the importance of, of living with our eye on eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me take a sip. Jesus had been teaching in the, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was the focal point of the faith of his Jewish contemporaries as it had been for their ancestors. For them, literally, the temple was the house of God. God had promised to dwell there. And there was a very, very deep emotional connection with the temple by those who worshiped there. Some of you were born into this congregation And I've heard you speak a number of times about your emotional connection to this building. Either because something, um, some landmark in in your life, perhaps you were married here, perhaps your, your parents or grandparents were married here, or there was a funeral of someone you loved here. You were converted here, converted to Christianity, and so you have great affinity for this place. We'll multiply that many times. And that was the feeling of the Jews toward the temple in Jerusalem. It reminded them of their past, of how their ancestors had worshipped. It reminded them of the future, because the temple was a symbol of the future, that God would restore his people from the rule of the Romans over them. And apparently the construction of the temple was extremely impressive. This is the third version of the temple in Jesus' day. The first was built by Solomon, and that was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple was built by Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the third was enlarged and almost rebuilt about the time of Jesus' birth by Herod. And we can read ancient historians who testify to how magnificent the building was. Huge, ornate. And as the disciples walked out of there, one of them commented on this marvelous building. And immediately, Jesus responds, and it's not so much a rebuke as an exhortation to look beyond the present to the future. And he says, the temple will come to destruction where not one stone will be left upon another. Obviously, the disciples were probably quite surprised by Jesus' comment, but they don't ask any questions immediately. There's time that they leave the temple, they leave Jerusalem, they walk over to the Mount of Olives, they go up that hill and they, they sit. And there before them is the, the cityscape of, of Jerusalem. And once they're there, verses 3 and 4 tell us that the four of the disciples begin to ask him questions Had they really heard him correctly? Had he really prophesied the destruction of God's temple? You see, for the disciples, there was an event that went with the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple meant the end of the world. That was one event in their mind. For the temple to be destroyed would mean the end of the world. We know that also from the Gospel of Matthew, where he gives some more questions that the disciples asked, but we won't turn there now. Now, the disciples associated those events together, destruction of the temple and the end of the world. What Jesus does here is separate them. It says, this is one event, the destruction of the temple, and the end of the world will come later. So beginning, I just want to give you some of the highlights. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus gives words of instruction. See that no one leads you astray. Our Lord knew that many of his followers, could easily fall prey to false teachers. And some of those false teachers would claim to be the Christ, it says in verse 6, I am he. Others would point to signs of the times, to wars, to rumors of wars, and insist that these events connected together with natural disasters like earthquakes and famine. that These events and these natural disasters were signs that the world, the end of the world, was just months away verse 8, Jesus refers to those things, compares them to birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. When an expectant mother has an accurate due date for when her baby is to be born, the labor pains may begin days, even weeks, before the actual birth is to take place. And so who knows how long, especially in Jesus' day, when the medical... Practice would not be near as precise as today. Once a woman began to experience birth pains, they didn't know how long it would be until the baby would arrive. It just meant the baby is coming. Jesus refers to those natural disasters and and these false prophecies and saying those are the beginning of birth pains. It's not the end yet, but it signifies or indicates the the end. So therefore, in verse 9, he says, be on your guard. Live with readiness. Live with expectation that I am coming back. We can often misidentify when that will be. I was reading last night some excerpts from a book written by Christopher Columbus. It was more of a series of essays that he wrote. It's called The Book of Prophecies. And he prophesied the world would end in 1656. And he did that based on his knowledge of scripture, but he thought the world would end in 1656. Obviously, he was wrong. Though for totally different reasons, Stephen Hawking, just two weeks before his death, submitted a research paper that suggests parallel universes and predicts the end of this one. Hawking said that this universe will eventually fade into blackness, much like a star running out of energy. And one of the last lectures he gave, he said that we are running out of space, and the only thing we can do as humans is to go to other worlds. It's time to explore other solar systems. Spreading out may be the only thing that saves us from ourselves. Well, like I said, totally different motivation than someone like Christopher Columbus. So Jesus says, "When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be misled. Don't panic. Beginning in verse 9, he describes some of the sufferings that will go on by believers during this time. We may have to endure suffering, he says in verse 9. Verse 13 says there may be persecution to be endured. We need to face that realistically. We are to be witnesses to Christ. His purpose is that the gospel must be preached to all people groups, to all nations, he says in verse 10. And so when we face persecution and opposition, even as we try to evangelize, our natural reaction is to say, well, maybe we ought to back off. Maybe we ought to hunker down. Maybe we need to protect ourselves. We can't send missionaries there. They might get killed. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that? That was a reality. Everywhere he went, he might be killed. Some of the old hymn writers that wrote about missions would say we hasten the day of the Lord, meaning we we hasten the coming of the Lord by fulfilling this prophecy that the gospel must go forth to all nations. So as we take the gospel to the unreached, we are hastening his coming. I was taught a system of prophecy and end times when I was younger that was uh, that before Christ came again that Christians would be raptured out and then there would be obviously a period of great suffering and uh, before Christ came again and I liked it because as people would say that taught that you don't think God would allow his people to go through such tribulation do you and then I realized they are going through such tribulation would an American Christian look into a, the face of a Christian in a Chinese prison right now and say, oh, God would never allow his people to go through such suffering. So he, he's going to take us out, take us out of here. Christ is saying, no, you will go through the suffering. You will, there will be persecutions. There will be sufferings that will happen all before the end, and it's to be expected. The problem is when we don't expect it. We don't have a proper understanding of suffering." So, the time is not to hunker down, but the very times when evangelism is most crucial is when times are difficult. But the destruction of the temple would take place within a matter of decades, but it would not mark the end of everything. Jesus was teaching them that instead it would mark only the dawning of a new era. See, in their understanding, God dwelt at the temple. And therefore, once it was destroyed in 70 AD, the believers went out and began to understand more of what Corinthians says, that we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. And so we are to go into all the world and take the gospel. Jerusalem could no longer keep the covenant mercy of God was in its walls. It would be destroyed. And so ordinary men and women, believers, would take the gospel to the four corners of the earth the destruction of that temple in Jerusalem Jesus says would signify that he would be coming soon when scripture speaks about him coming soon we have to understand that's measured by god's timetable not ours soon to you and me might be a matter of hours or even a matter of days but on God's plan of redemption in his plan, soon just means that's the next great act on his redemptive calendar. So it may be years, it may be centuries, but that's what's happening next, and so he says it will happen soon. Verses 14 to 27, you, probably as we read through that, you might have been scratching your head, especially this phrase, the abomination of desolation. A lot of ink has been spilled on that, and and I don't have the knowledge uh, or the voice to go into it this morning. So I'll just tell you briefly that this phrase, the abomination of desolation, was first used in the book of Daniel. It clearly refers to some terrible act of irreverence and blasphemy committed against God. It had been demonstrated at least once in the Jewish history in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes had erected an altar in the temple, erected an altar to the pagan god Zeus, and then over the altar of burnt offerings had sacrificed pigs, which, of course, were seen as unclean to God's people. So that had just been this, he thought of the most insulting thing he could do, and he did that. But we also think that this phrase, the abomination of desolation, was something that would be filled within a few, fulfilled within a few decades of Jesus speaking these words. And that was in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., Titus and his Roman soldiers came and they completely destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I won't reread verses 14 through 19, That's the verses where Jesus says, let he who is in the field flee. Don't go back into the city, but flee to the mountains and so forth. And woe be it to women who are expecting a child at that time. Pray it won't happen in winter. You may say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, when the Roman army moved into Palestine, the Holy Land, and they began to wipe out the Jewish resistance, Many of the Jews did what came natural to them. They sought to find safety inside the walls of Jerusalem. But there was no safety to be found there. They thought that God, of course, would not allow his city to be destroyed. So they ran into the city, which became the most dangerous place to be. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote for the Romans, he described the aftermath of after Titus and his legionnaires were finished. As many as a million Jews died at the time because of starvation or crucifixion and other horrors. In fact, it was written that the Romans needed so much wood on which to crucify people that they chopped down all the trees that covered the hills around Jerusalem. The trees were gone because so many people were crucified. And so... I believe that our Lord's words were literally fulfilled about 35 years after he spoke these here in the Gospel of Mark. And then he talks about when the Son of Man comes in verses 24 to 27. Uh, I think this is talking about when Jesus returns again, though that's debated. Some think that this was fulfilled in 70 A.D. I think it's talking about the day of the Lord, the last coming of the Lord, the second coming. And that he will send forth his angels, these messengers, who will come. And just as the leaves on the fig tree are normally the sign of the approach of summer, so these events should be a sign to the people in verse 29. And notice how he emphasizes these things will happen within the lifetime of that generation. While this has sometimes been taken to refer to the Jewish people, that's not the most natural interpretation. What are, what are some lessons from this? without getting bogged down in the details. First, we're urged here to listen to what Jesus says, not to what others say. Otherwise, we can be easily deceived. We're to be on our guard, just as Jesus said in verse 23. Second, we're not to be taken by surprise by the sufferings of God's people, nor the catastrophes of history. These are the birth pains which signify the dawning of a new age and the coming of Christ. So here's the key thought when Jesus talks about the end times. When Jesus speaks about the future, such as here in Mark 13, his words are always meant to change the way we live in the present. He did not bring these things up for idle speculation and late-night discussion just to say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. It could be this. It could be this. He always spoke about the future to have an impact on the way we live now, today. So how do we be prepared? Verses 32 to 37, he goes on. He gives a little simple parable about a, a man who goes away from his home, and he leaves his servants in charge, and in verses 34 and following, he He reminds them that they need to be prepared when he comes back, though he doesn't tell them when he will. When I was growing up, um, I have one older sister and my parents. Sometimes after supper, they'd say, hey, let's load up in the car and go down and see our neighbors, the, uh, the Bone family. They were good friends of mine. Our family, they had four sons, Buddy Bone, John Bone, Andy Bone, Tommy Bone roanne and mary bone were the parents and by the way this the names of the sons were uh john sherman bone andrew jackson bone and thomas jefferson bone they got all these north south everything mixed up in there but we would just load up and we drive down there to their house no announcement no phone call we did oh their cars are here they're here we go in hey hey y'all come on in We're just eating right now. Come on in, have a seat. We'll visit. Could you imagine today how long a friendship would last with somebody if you did that? Or if somebody dropped in totally unannounced, totally unannounced. You'd say, I don't think they're a friend. I can't believe they did that. Did not even send me a message. Didn't even call, see if it would be all right. The Lord is going to be a drop in visitor. He promises to drop in unannounced. So the question is are we ready? Well, how do we get ready? There are three things we need to do to prepare. We need to stand on the truth of His return. Do you know that the second coming is mentioned at least 300 times in the New Testament alone? Over 300 times it's referred to that Jesus is coming back. I know in the eyes of the world, this makes us sound even crazier than believing in the resurrection. What sounds crazier than believing a dead man came back alive? Oh, I've got news for you. He's coming back again, but this time he's coming in the clouds. Now we really sound nuts. And yet, Christ said it's going to happen. It is certain, and you can count on it. So the truth of his return helps us to be prepared. Knowing the time of his return. I thought you said, Chip, that we can't know the time. Well, that's right. He gave us signs to tell us it's near. But he made it clear the only one who knows for sure exactly when is the Father. So we can't know exactly the time except we are one day closer today today, than we were at this time yesterday. And we are almost one hour closer than we were when we began this service. 54 minutes to be exact. Third, so we know the truth of his return, the time of his return, and then the task until his return. The task is we are to be on guard. We're to be on the alert. He uses a phrase, keep watch. If you knew a famous person, a person for whom you had great respect, a celebrity, was going to come to your house, but that person had not told you the precise day and time, but said, I'm coming, you would do everything you could always to be ready. As a Christian, we should be living for Jesus day after day, serving him in every way we can, looking with anticipation when he will take you to be with him forever. Every aspect, every part of your life should be geared to the fact that that it might suddenly be interrupted by the Lord's return and make sure you are ready. We have some amazing examples from history. This from some different preachers. Dwight L. Moody said, I never preach a sermon without thinking that possibly the Lord may come before I preach another. So he preached thinking this is the last sermon I'll ever be able to preach. G. Campbell Morgan in England, who was the predecessor to Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Church, said, I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. I am not looking for death, I am looking for him. And George Whitfield, the great evangelist in colonial America, said, I am daily waiting for the coming of the Son of God. So each of us should work at our assigned task and avoid throwing in the towel regardless of how prevalent evil may appear to be around us. The entire passage, you know what the entire passage stresses? If you were to say, okay, Chip, give it to me in one phrase. I'm kind of simple-minded. Mark 13 is pretty complex. Maybe that's why we jump over it and go from Palm Sunday to Easter. Give it to me in one phrase. Okay, here it is. God is in control, not us. We should therefore not fear what man can do to us, but fear Jesus as we await his certain and sudden return, which could happen at any moment. How would you spend today if you knew Jesus was going to return tomorrow? You probably heard it before, but John Wesley was asked that question. He was making his way on horseback from one preaching engagement to another. When he was asked the question, he took out his journal. He didn't have calendar on his iPhone, so he took out his journal. And he read the list of appointments he had for the following day, and he said, these are the things I would do today if I knew the Lord was coming tomorrow. I would do exactly what I have here. What did he mean by that? He meant that he's thinking about that all the time and that he was thinking about it before he even planned his day. What would I do if I knew he was coming tomorrow? Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that it's only through Christ we can know you, that we can be adopted into your family as sons and daughters, as we receive him, that you loved us so much that even when we have committed crimes against you and sinned against you and experienced death, spiritual death, that you promised a redeemer. A Redeemer that would come, who lived a perfect life, who died shortly after he spoke these words, who was resurrected, and who now is at your right hand praying for us. And we are at that stage where he will come soon. We don't know if that's tomorrow. We don't know if that's 100 years from now. But we pray that you'd help us to be on guard and to be alert, to be ready, to be hastening the day of the Lord through evangelizing those who don't know you. And we would pray that our trust would be in Christ. If there's anyone here that these very thoughts sound crazy, or if they're uh, terrifying, the very notion of you returning. Pray that today you might open their eyes, give them faith to believe the simplicity of the gospel, that Christ is their Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.